0: or you can email radio at bnntv.org. Good evening. I'm your host, Sharon
1: Hinton. And tonight, I don't have a guest because my guest is you. We're going to be taking phone calls within the show and talking about a lot of different things that you may not hear on major media. Things that are happening in the state, in the city of Boston, that may affect you, especially if you're a parent of a Boston Public school student, or if you're a registered voter or not a registered voter, it seems like in Boston, we always have elections going on. And this year is nothing different. There's legislation that's happening. Um, I'm not going to tell you about all the legislation because I want to hear from you. So this is free for Monday, which we don't tend to have because um, I usually have a guest and I have awesome guests lined up for all the other shows. But tonight the guest is you we will be taking phone calls at 617 708 you're on another level, and we'll be right back after this information break. See you in a minute.
0: Voter suppression never went away. It evolved. They say to me,
2: well, we thought we had done away with poll taxes. We thought we had done away with
0: intimidation. We have all kinds of obstacles been placed in our way. It's the same game with a different name. To understand how we got here, historian Carol Anderson says we first need to understand white rage.
2: White rage is not how we often think about it. We often think of rage as being this kind of violent backlash or uproar. We know that there's something wrong with the violence that takes down a child. We know that something is wrong with the violence that six dogs on a nonviolent protesters in Birmingham. We know something's wrong with that, but the kinds of quiet policies that led to that moment, it takes us a long time to to recognize that the policies themselves are predicated on white supremacy and exclusion.
0: Anderson says the trigger for white rage is Black advancement. For each advancement Blacks made for voting rights, there was an opposite reaction of white rage. That was a case in Mississippi after the passage of the 15th Amendment, which gave the right to vote to freed Black men.
2: Because Mississippi said, how do we write a law saying we don't want Black people to vote without writing a law that says explicitly, we don't want Black people to vote? Because the 15th Amendment said you can't write a law that's that explicit. What Mississippi did was Mississippi said, we will take the societally imposed conditions on African-Americans and use those conditions as the access to the ballot box.
0: Mississippi passed a new state constitution that required every citizen to pay a poll tax, pass a literacy test, and in some cases, meet a property requirement. At the time, black people were less than 30 years out of slavery when they earned no money and were blocked from reading. The Mississippi Plan of 1890 was applied equally to black and white voters, but white men could get around the barriers with so-called grandfather causes. If they or a relative have voted before the Civil War ended, they could skip the poll tax or literacy test. The Mississippi governor later admitted the provisions had no other purpose than to eliminate blacks from politics. That's how a blueprint to circumvent the 15th Amendment was created. And other states followed Mississippi's lead. In the Jim Crow era, black voters were often met by violence. Civil rights workers who helped other African Americans to vote were shot, lynched, or violently harassed by vigilantes and police. And even though the 19th Amendment passed in 1920 to give women the right to vote, by 1940, only 3% of eligible African Americans in the South were registered to vote.
2: The Civil Rights Movement is one of those moments in American history where the U.S. feels a depth of pride because it overcame, it overcame something as villainous as Jim Crow. And it took a lot of bodies. It took this kind of moral power of the nonviolent movement. It took grassroots organization and mobilizing. It took Martin Luther King. This hard-earned legislative victory of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965.
0: The Voting Rights Act was hailed as a defining civil rights legislation of its time. It was especially important because it had an enforcement mechanism the 15th Amendment lacked. Under Sections 4 and 5 of the VRA, states with a history of discriminatory voting laws now needed federal approval or preclearance to change their election laws. This gave the Justice Department and federal courts in DC power to block discriminatory election laws. Its impact was profound. In Mississippi alone, voter turnout among blacks increased from 6% in 1964 to 59% in 1969. By then, President Lyndon B. Johnson had established anti-poverty programs to curb inequality. He created Medicare and Medicaid for the elderly and poor and enacted education and housing reforms. By 1966, 85 percent of whites said the pace of civil rights progress was too fast. And by the 1968 presidential election, white resentment had coalesced into the Southern strategy.
2: The Southern strategy, bringing Democrats and disaffected whites into the Republican Party.
0: The Southern strategy bolstered racist policies and practices without using racist language. Anderson says this applied to voter suppression as well.
2: Voter suppression is really based on the Mississippi Plan of 1890, where you can't say, we don't want Black people to vote. But that's the intent. That's been a key element in the policy of now the Republican Party. I would say another key element in policy was uttered by Paul Wyrick. They want everybody to vote.
3: I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by a majority of people. They never have been from the beginning of our country, and they are not now. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes
2: down. To understand the language of voter fraud and voter suppression that's going on now, that's the framework. That our leverage, our power increases when the voting populace is constrained.
0: When President Ford signed the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act in 1975, the scope of the bill was expanded to protect Latino, Native American, and Asian voters by requiring bilingual elections. Congress reauthorized the Voting Rights Act in 1982, 1992, and 2006. The 2006 renewal included 15,000 pages of evidence of ongoing discrimination in voting. Congress said there was progress in eliminating first-generation barriers to voting, but that second-generation barriers had persisted.
1: Yes, we have made some progress. We have come a distance. We are no longer met with bullwhips, fire hoses, and violence when we attempt to register and vote. But the sad fact is, the sad truth is, Discrimination still exists.
0: Second-generation barriers were laws that diluted the political power of minorities at the polls and included things like racial gerrymandering, poll closures, voter ID laws, and cutting down early voting and same-day voter registration. On a bipartisan basis, the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized for 25 years. Two years later, in 2008, America elected its first Black president. The election
2: of Barack Obama is one in the latest string of the advancement of Black folk that leads to this incredible white rage.
0: In 2010, conservative Tea Party candidates swelled within the Republican Party. From 2011 to 2015, 395 new voting restrictions were introduced in 49 states, many of which were struck down by the Department of Justice. Anderson says the election and then re-election of America's first Black president was a factor behind the voting restrictions.
2: His advancement was the penultimate advancement, and therefore was the penultimate affront. I'm not surprised then that in his second term, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Shelby County v. Holder that the Voting Rights Act, particularly Section 4, which was what they called their pre-clearance provision, U.S. Supreme Court gutted that.
0: The Shelby ruling released nine states and several counties from federal oversight and preclearance in changing their election laws. Southern states reacted swiftly.
2: Two hours after the Shelby County uh, v. Holder decision, Texas implemented its racist voter ID law.
0: Two months later, North Carolina enacted HB 589, a bill that required strict voter ID requirements eliminated same-day voter registration, and limited early voting. The U.S. Court of Appeals later struck down the law, saying that it "...targeted African Americans with almost surgical precision." Since the Shelby ruling, at least 23 states have enacted newly restrictive statewide voter laws, such as voter roll purges, poll closures, and strict voter ID laws. This November, the Republican National Committee and Trump campaign are planning to flood polling locations with poll watchers claiming to stop widespread voter fraud. A key Trump advisor is heard describing the multi-million dollar plan in this leaked audio.
3: Right, Traditionally, it's always been Republicans suppressing votes in places. Let's start protecting our voters. Right? We know where they are now. We know where they are. Now. And they're all in one part of the state, and their voters are all in one part of the state. So let's start playing offense a little bit, and that's what you're going to see in 2020, I think it's going to be markedly different. It's going to be a much bigger program, much more aggressive program, a much better funded program, and uh, we're going to need all the help we can get.
0: Since the passing of Congressman John Lewis, the Senate has come under pressure to approve a bill to restore Voting Rights Act protections struck down by the Supreme Court. When the bill passed the House in 2019, 54 years after Lewis walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, he said this.
1: The vote is the most powerful, nonviolent instrument or tool we have in a democratic society. And people should be able to use it.
2: We understand that the right to vote is foundational and bedrock in democracy. People are asking themselves, how did we get here?
0: Voter suppression never went away. It evolved. Left unchecked, it will continue to spread.
1: And welcome back. I hope that was some valuable information. That was some background history on voting in this country. I'm actually old enough to remember fighting for the right to vote. That's right. It's recent. Um, It's always been recent for African-Americans. 1965. Amongst other things that we're still fighting, fighting for, this voter suppression. So I was writing down information. If, if you are registered to vote, you know what it took for you to be able to register to vote. You can register v- to vote online, by mail, or in person. You can register to vote online, by mail, or in person. The last election that we had, which actually elected the mayor of the city of Boston, Only under 30% of the registered voters in Boston came out to vote. So 30%, less than 30% of the people who are registered to vote decided who is actually running the city of Boston. 30% running the city of Boston in so many different ways, because that wasn't the only office. So what do you need to be able to register to vote? You've got to be at least 18 years of age have a valid li- uh, driver's license, or a state ID, sometimes a you know, real ID, a current utility bill, a bank statement, a pay stub, a government-issued check, um, or a utility bill, or any government document that has your name and your address on it. So there is so many different ways that you can prove who you are. We, you know You come and they say, can you tell us who you are? Well, yeah, I'm, that you exist, yes, I'm here. So you don't necessarily need a birth certificate. But a driver's license, you have to have provided. A lot of these government things, you will have had to have provided certain things. And so there's issues now that are being discussed on whether or not a person who's undocumented should be able to vote. And there's two sides of that issue, whether or not someone who is not a citizen of the United States should be able to vote in municipal elections. And there are people on the no side and the yes side of that. But if you are not registered to vote, you've already selected the no side because you're not able to vote. And so if you are living in this country, there are things that are being decided for you, whether you are documented or not, like on a city level, who picks up my trash when? Some places in the city of Boston get trash picked up twice. Sometimes it's only once. Whether or not I get snow services, whether who has the street light, a city light? So you look at all the situations where your taxes are paying for that. And if you're not voting, then you're not deciding where that tax money is going. If you have a student, a child, who is a student of Boston Public Schools, the Boston Public Schools are subdi- subsidized and paid for by what? Property taxes by homeowners. Taxes. And over 40% of the city budget, which is being legislated now and decided now by the city council and the mayor, um, is taxes, is homeowners, is, is and that's another legislation that may come up to vote. Um, people talk about the rent and how much it costs and the mortgage rates and how much it costs to live in Boston. Boston right now is the third highest city to live in in the country. Boston is the third highest place to live in, in this country. And if for those of you who are living here then, when there was rent control and that issue was brought up, whether or not there should be rent control um, and it was voted down, voted down, So be a registered voter. If you're a registered voter and you don't vote, after seeing that video, and maybe you have to see it again, uh, there are people, black people, African-American people in this country that died for the right to vote. So now this talk in black, indigenous, people of color, BIPOC, you hear all of that stuff? and Hyde Park and certain sections of the city of Boston have large percentages of immigrants, people who are not born in this country, not even necessarily educated in this country, who are people of color, who have melanin in their skin, who don't understand the sacrifice it took for you to even be able to choose your seat on a bus. Some bus lines are free, there's three bus lines that are free because of Michelle Wu, Mayor Wu, has decided as part of her green deal and as part of her uh, administration policies that um, she's trying to get all of the MBTA to be free. And that's a back and forth between you know different district departments and policies. And she's the mayor, but there's only so much she can do. If you have a person that you support who is running for office, you saying, oh, yeah, I like you, and it's great that you're running for office, and you don't vote for them, you don't get out and you work for them, then it's hot air and it's useless and as a matter of fact you're a part of the problem. So um, let me tell you about some elections that are happening this year it's statewide elections. This particular piece that we just saw, and thank you for Washington Post for putting this together, um, it was talking about how voter intimidation and suppression has evolved since the 15th amendment. So historian Carol Anderson traces the evolution, she traced the evolution of voter suppression tactics from poll taxes and literacy tests instituted after the passage of the 15th amendment to the rise of strict voter ID laws and poll closures after the election of America's first president, black president, unless you just recently come into this country like the last five years, then you know that Barack Obama had two terms as the first black, actually he wasn't really technically the first black president, but that's for another show, first recognized black president um, of the United States. So Anderson argues about voter suppression, which is rooted in white supremacy and white rage. She's a professor of African-American studies at Emory University and author of White Rage and One Person, No Vote. How voter suppression is destroying our democracy. Democracy is based on many people coming together and making decisions. This is a live show, but I guarantee you what is happening in Ukraine and Russia imposing it, trying to impose its rule on the Ukraine, which is a democracy, unless you're underneath a rock and you're watching other things, you know a little bit about what's happening around the world. Every government around the world is not a democracy. Democracy, theoretically, technically, is supposed to be where the people decide who rules. This country went to war against a king to not have a king, right? So but we have a representative democracy. So that goes down to for every single and, and that's a remnant of slavery. And that's another big discussion. Um, certain states of certain numbers of people back in slavery because the slave owners didn't want slave count, slaves counted, even though slaves were people, enslaved people, were human beings and people, there was no right to vote women did not have the right to vote in this country white men with property had the right to vote so see it was twisted from the very beginning but different amendments have tried to straighten it out the voters rights amendment okay try to straighten that out the voters Rights act try to straighten that out even though technically if you're born in this country you're an american citizen and you should be able to get the right to vote but you have to register the right to vote so one of the other discussions is whether or not people should automatically, when they turn 18, be registered as a voter. An automatic voter registration. That is not decided. It is being discussed now. And if you want to weigh in on that, it's probably a good idea if you're a registered voter. So some of the elections that are coming up in the state election. So the the Democratic State Committee is having um, a convention in June, the weekend of the first weekend in June, but here's some of the offices and the candidates. Some people you may know, you may not know anyone, but you're gonna be asked to to, um, vote in a primary in September, September 8th, and you're gonna be asked to vote in a major election, November 2nd. For those of you, and I've heard it because I've worked so many different polls and supported candidates, they'll go, oh, I'll wait to the real election, newsflash, all elections are real elections. If there is more than one person that has gotten enough signatures, gotten on the ballot, and they're in the primary, that election is going to decide who are the final two candidates on the main election. So if you like someone and you don't vote for them in the primary, that person doesn't get enough votes. They don't get to be on the ballot. Sanjay, it's Hindu for You understand? You get it? Sabe? Okay. So, this August 17th is the deadline to be registered to vote. This year, August 17th. If you're going to register to vote, you still have time. You have until August 17th for the primary. The primary itself is going to, um, oh, and then also by mail, August 30th. You can vote by, by mail. But the election itself is September 2nd. I'm sorry. September 6th is the state primary. September 6th. Let me get it together. November 2nd is the actual election. Primary deciding who's going to be the final candidates on the ballot. And then actually it could be more than two people um, because there's more than one party. There's a Democratic Party, the Republican Party, Libertarian Party, Independent So you need to be registered. When you go to register to vote, they're going to ask you, do you want to be listed as an independent? Do you want to be declared a Democrat? Do you want to be uh, declared a Republican? Or um, one of the other, Green Party or Libertarian? There's several different parties, Okay. So the following candidates, here's the offices that are going to be decided. Governor, Lieutenant Governor, Secretary of the Commonwealth, the Secretary of State, Attorney General, treasurer and auditor. I had to look up auditor. What does an auditor really do? I also had to look up secretary of state, although for those of you who are paying attention to Stacey Abrams and how she ran at one point for the governor of Georgia, the secretary of state at that time was also running for governor of Georgia and he changed the voting rules So the secretary of state determines how many voting booths are out there, how many voting polls, how many mailing boxes, what the date of the election is determined legally, but then also in terms of where you can go vote and how you can go vote is determined by the secretary of state. So that's where a lot of voter suppression has been happening across the country as well. It is still happening. Things are still happening. There are states that actually ruled because, There were so many people of color that showed up to vote and changed what happened in the White House. There were people that wanted that man with the red, blonde hair, with the orange skin, to be back in there. And he got enough. He got 71 million votes. But he didn't get enough to be president again. But he had enough to get in the first time. And there was all discussions about that. Um, I still get mail from him. Donald Trump, still get mail from him saying that he's going to run the next election. Biden, Joe Biden, is currently the president of the United States. Kamala Harris is currently the vice president. There's another election. The president's there for four years. There's an election. Whoever gets in the ballot, and those of us who are sort of like the political, I, I can't say a junkie, but I pay attention because I've worked in news for a long period of time, So for those of us who pay attention to that kind of stuff, and and recently I've been watching these PBS documentaries on Hitler and Mussolini and all these other people that are, so there's different forms of government. You know, there's dictators, there's fascists, there's communists, there's social democratic socialists, there's socialist governments. And so um, there's different types of governments. Some things work, some things don't work. There are people who are dictators for life, who have been in office 20, 30, 40 years, and then you hear about military coups and all that other stuff. You know, for those of us who are just trying to keep a roof over our head and food in our mouths, that may be a little bit too much. But all politics really come down to locally and how it affects you. If you want to have a good school in your district, and good schools actually determine property values. So if you own property and you have a good school in your district, more than likely, your property is going to be valued higher. So your investment is worth more. Your house is probably, the, or any real estate is probably the biggest the largest investment that you're going to make. So we're getting deep tonight. I don't need anybody else to be a guest. <laughs> and then I'm going to open up the phone calls for you because I want to know what is affecting you. So. Um, for For governor, we've got uh, Senator Sonia Chang Diaz who's stepping down from her senatorial seat, and then Maura Healy. Mora Healy is the current. She's not the current governor. Uh, the current governor is, is Baker, Governor Baker. He's decided he's not going to run. So guess what? If he doesn't run, that leaves an open seat. There's now an open seat, and there are two women that are vying for that. Mora Healy and Sonia Chang-Diaz. For Lieutenant Governor, there's Brett Barrow, Kim Driscoll, Tammy, Tammy Gouveia, and I hope I pronounce the name right, Tammy Gouveia, Adam Hines, and Eric P. Lesser. Now let me just say, all of these people are starting to text me and send me emails and call me. I personally don't know any of these people. I know Sonia Chang-Diaz. I've met Maura Healy. I've seen her policies. I don't know any of these people running for Lieutenant Governor, I'm gonna be real. So I'm gonna have to do my homework and you should do it too. Brett Barrow, Kim Driscoll, Tammy Gouveia, Adam Hines and Eric Lesser, the Secretary of the Commonwealth. You've got William Francis Galvin, he's the current Secretary of the Commonwealth and Tanisha Sullivan is the president of the Boston branch of the NAACP. She's also a woman of color, and she's a woman who was involved in the exam school uh, issue. And she's also um, spearheaded a group that is dealing with the elected versus appointed school committee. But she's currently the president of the Boston branch of the NAACP. Attorney General Andrea Campbell, who was recently a city councilor and ran for, she was a mayoral candidate in the last election, Shannon Liss Reardon, Quentin Palfrey. Those are the three that are running for Attorney General. Andrea Campbell, Shannon Liss Reardon, Quentin Palfrey. For anybody that's in Boston, that knows of the city council, you may be familiar with Andrea Campbell. You should get familiar with Shannon Liss Reardon and Quentin Palfrey. The other office, there's only one person who is the current treasurer, Deborah Goldberg. I should know. I don't know. I've seen plenty of flyers. I've read them. I don't know her. But you can easily go on each one of these people's pages. They all have pages that give you information. Um, You will soon, if you're ready to vote, start being bombarded with all of the campaign literature as we get closer to August probably July-ish, it starts showing up, depending on how much money that candidate has. And for auditor, Chris Dempsey and Diana DiZoglio. DiZoglio, DiZoglio. So Treasurer Deborah Goldberg, there's only one person running, so you can vote and not vote. Not voting actually is saying something too. Auditor Chris Dempsey and Diana DiZoglio. These candidates, um, Petition, they may still petition for endorsement. They had to collect at least 500 signatures of 500 delegates. So, in this convention, they had to, in in this convention, we'll actually vote for who we're going to support in the Democratic convention in Worcester um, in June, the first weekend in June. So, that's what's happening there. Um, So, again, for voter registration, The primary deadline for registering to vote, August 17th. The voter registration deadline for the main election in November is August 19th, August 19th. And then the election itself, October, I'm sorry, October 19th. So for the November election, it's October 19th to register to vote. For the September election, it's August 17th. And then the election in November, is November 8th. In the election in September for the primary is September 6th, September 6th. So something, so register to vote. People died for it. It's part of your right to decide uh, what's going to happen with your money, what's going to happen with your life, what happens with all this stuff that your child's uh, education Um, And then there's other issues around that. We're going to take another break and then we're going to come back and talk about some other stuff that is involved in you participating and some information. If you're alive and you have you have uh, offspring, you have children or you have property, that's it's an aside. But this is all like about action, registering to vote, doing something about making your life better. You want to live your best life. Well, part of that is being engaged and being fully involved and showing up. This is on another level. We're gonna be taking phone calls uh, at 617-708-3280. That's 617-708-3280. Get your your punching, you know, whatever you do to call in. We're gonna take a short break and we'll be back right after this.
3: Boston is the only municipality in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts with an appointed, not elected, school committee. Our citywide coalition has submitted a non binding ballot question for the November election to begin the process to change this. Many Bostonians have no idea how and when we lost the right to elect our school committee and some have strongly held beliefs based on an incomplete story that omits the struggle for black and brown representation on the Boston School Committee. In this city, when you say the words Boston School Committee, it won't be long before someone says Louise Day Hicks. Hicks was the villain of the school committee in the 1960s, openly opposing efforts to desegregate Boston public schools. Many believe that Hicks is the reason we now have an appointed school board. But she left the school committee in 1969, 22 years before the elected school committee was abolished. When we focus on the most openly racist politician this city has ever known, We erase a remarkable story of the struggle for Black political power and equal access to education in Boston. The Black struggle for political power on the Boston School Committee began long before Judge Garrity's ruling to desegregate Boston public schools in 1974. Leaders in the Black community, some of them parents in the district, ran for the Boston School Committee to try to provide equal access to education for black children. Ruth Batson, Mel King, John D. O'Brien, among others, ran for School Committee again and again, but could not win in an at-large election system that favored the predominantly white voting bloc. It wasn't until 1977 that John D. O'Brien won a seat on the Boston School Committee, becoming the first black politician to serve on the board since 1900. This was the result of two decades of organizing and voter registration to empower the black community. In 1981, Dr. Jean McGuire became the first black woman elected to the at-large Boston School Committee. In that same election cycle, a ballot question passed that changed the Boston School Committee from five members elected at large citywide to nine elected by district and four at large. This was a huge win for black and brown voters because it meant they could be represented without winning a citywide majority. In the 1983 election, the first with the new district structure in place Three Blacks and one Afro-Latina were voted onto the board. This Boston School Committee went on to select Laval Wilson, the first Black superintendent of Boston Public Schools. But trouble was already brewing for the newly formulated school committee. Mayor Flynn was under pressure from powerful business groups to dissolve the elected school committee. In 1989, Mayor Flynn placed a question on the ballot to abolish the elected school committee and replace it with a seven-member board appointed by the mayor. Communities of color opposed this. So did the low-income whites of South Boston. But with hundreds of thousands of dollars in corporate money behind it, Flynn's proposal won by a razor-thin margin of 1.5 percent. Despite opposition from the Black members of the Boston City Council and the Black Legislative Caucus, a Home Rule petition passed in the city and then in the State House. And on July 6, 1991, Governor Bill Weld signed the Home Rule petition that abolished the elected Boston School Committee. In 1993, as Mayor Flynn left Boston to become the ambassador to the Vatican, he had a change of heart. In a letter written to the candidates hoping to replace him, he wrote, despite the accomplishments of the appointed board, I feel compelled to acknowledge that the loss of the vote for school committee members has remained a bone in the throat of many Bostonians. The appointed board has done what it had to do. It has accomplished a clean break with the past. Within Boston, where entrenched white parents felt like they were on the losing end of desegregation and then had to contend with a diverse, elected school committee, it's no surprise that this painful era ended with the disenfranchisement of the black community, who had finally found an entry point into Boston's political power structure via the Boston School Committee. But times have changed residents and leaders across the city are banding together to bring democracy back to school governance just like every other city and town in massachusetts join the campaign to reclaim your right to vote for representation on the boston school committee vote yes on this question appearing on the boston ballot on november 2nd
1: so currently in the city of boston there are meetings that are happening um, I'm actually on the, the uh, Boston, oh God, there's so many meetings that I'm in, so many councils, um, Boston Committee for Education Equity. And that's one of the groups that's involved in deciding uh, whether or not the school committee should be elected versus appointed. But there are hearings, I attended a hearing last week, um, actually two hearings, um, on the same day, during the day. <laughs> in the city council chambers and it's open to the public. You can actually become, um, you can testify. Depending on how many people sign up, uh, you can speak for two minutes or three minutes and you can actually chime in to um, wherever you want to, to whatever you wanna say regarding that particular issue. The school committee has meetings every other Wednesday. They start at five o'clock. So there are a lot of things that are being decided right now And, you know, there are people that are arguing, if you want the average person to be able to chime in, don't do it during a work day or don't do it during a school day. So the hearings that took place last week and actually it's taking place this week are regarding the elected versus um, appointed. Currently, Boston has the only appointed school committee in Massachusetts, the only one out of 325 school committees across the commonwealth of massachusetts hopefully have that number right Um, but it's over 300 school committees all the other ones are elected except for boston which is the capital and which has the largest population now there are actually school committees that are in receivership but that's another school departments rather than in receivership that's another issue there are three towns um, holyoke and Lowell, and I forget the other one. But, so we have different things that are happening and there's different levels of governing and different people that are deciding what's going on. Right now you've got the Boston School Committee and you've got the mayor and you have a superintendent, Brenda Castellius. Brenda Castellius is leaving in June. She had an extension of her contract as superintendent for two years that happened last November. And then a few months ago, all of a sudden she's leaving. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Brenda. And it hasn't really fully come out whether or not she was asked to step down. The official statement is it was a mutual agreement. But for those of you who are in Boston, you know that during a pandemic, which we're still in it, people that want to take their mask off, that's another discussion. Um, so the federal uh, <coughs> Federal government has weighed in, federal, F- federal Supreme Court has weighed in in terms of whether or not you have to wear your mask on an airplane, the city has weighed in in terms of whether or not you need to wear a mask um, in restaurants and public places and that kind of stuff. So, so there are people that are lobbying on different ends of what's happening. We're just talking about the school, the educational system in Boston. So the mayor, Mayor Wu, has decided that she wants a permanent, not an interim, superintendent starting in June. Hello. We're at the end of April. I don't know about you, but I took longer than that to look for a place to stay. That's just my, you know. So a search firm has been selected. And um, there were public discussions about that. And there were public listening sessions. And actually, one of them happened on Saturday, on a Saturday, so people could weigh in. And there were several of them. There was one that was Spanish only, there was one just for students, and then there were two public sessions. I went to all of them except for the Spanish only. And people had an opportunity to say what qualities they wanted to be included in the job description for the next superintendent. Because we've had a rolling, a revolving door of superintendents here in Boston and a lack of stability of leadership, which is why DESI the Department of Elementary Secondary Education, a state state governing body over all of the education in Massachusetts has said they may possibly come in and take over control of the Boston Public Schools. Okay, hear me. We've got the school committee, and then you've got unions. right? You've got the bus drivers union. You've got the teachers union, the Boston teachers union. Um, You've got different unions underneath that that have to negotiate contracts. And then you have, um, you got the Boston School Committee and the mayor, so the Boston School Committee actually supervises and signs the contract for the superintendent, who by the way, gets paid more than the mayor, and so does the Boston Police Department Commissioner, gets paid more than the mayor, and you have the mayor. So the mayor appoints the school committee. The mayor appoints the nominating panel that selects the school committee, and the people do not vote any longer since 1991 on who is on the school committee that decides what happens in the Boston Public Schools. What schools get built? What schools stay open? What schools are closed? And the Timothy, which is in Roxbury, which I remember being a stellar school at one point, is now being closed. The P.A. Shaw, parents and teachers and students, demonstrated and testified and showed up at the Boston School Committee meetings to lobby for their school to not only stay open, but to be expanded as they were promised by the school committee and by the superintendent. So now instead of, and they, up till sixth grade, it's an elementary school, the P.A. Shaw, which is in Mattapan. So the research shows that the majority of schools that end up being closed are disproportionately in areas where black and brown students are and where lower income communities are. We're talking public schools. All you have to do is go on boston.gov or you can Google Boston School Committee meetings and sign up to testify. So whether you have a student or a child in the Boston public school system, you should chime in and say this is how I feel about it. Because again, if you're a property owner, even a renter, that will be, that your, what you pay for your um, house, for your rent, <clears throat> is also determined by who can move into, or does move into, or brings revenue, and spends revenue in your neighborhood. The more affluent the people are, the more money they're bringing in, the better the schools are. So people, when they look for a place to buy a house, they go, oh, let's see what the schools are like. How good are the schools? Because that affects your property rates. That affects the value of your home. That, that affects your taxes. I'm just saying. Again, we go back to the fact that Boston is the third most expensive city to live in the country. Where to live in the country. We also have the highest number of schools and hospitals per square mile than any place in the world. And these schools and universities and um, these, these nonprofit some of them are for profit, but they get a, a nonprofit break and they don't actually pay property taxes. They get assessed pilot fees, payments in lieu of taxes, which also affects how much money goes into the schools because if they're not paying taxes, or they're not paying their full amount of taxes, MIT, Harvard, Northeastern. I'm just naming. If we have we have the largest concentration of colleges, universities, and hospitals per square mile than any place in the world. Forty-two percent of the school, of the budget, the city budget, is for the schools. If you are not getting, and that's based on property taxes, but if the majority of people that live in Boston are renters. And they're not paying taxes. You see how this is, you know, how you can go out to other neighborhoods and other places, and it seems like their schools are all nice and everything, like Wellesley, Newton, right? Swampscott, because they have higher property taxes, higher property rates, and so they're putting more money into the schools. See how that's, how that works? So this is being decided now. So at the last election, last year's election, November, 99,000 people voted to return to an elected school committee. But what that looks like, because the elected school committees had different variations. Sometimes it was seven, sometimes it was nine, sometimes it was 13, uh, mirroring what the city council looks like. So you get four at-large people um, and you would have four at-large school committee members and nine that represent the districts. Um, This is being discussed now. And does it matter? Yes. Do you want local representation, but then you want people that reflect citywide? Do you still want the mayor to be able to appoint? And there's also a student representative that has been in the school committee forever who has never had a vote, and who who doesn't get um, the only elected person right now, and they don't get compensated like everybody else and they do the same work that everybody else does, but they don't have a vote, which means they don't have a voice. I mean, they can talk up and everything, give opinions, but they don't have a vote. And so that's being discussed and how that gets worked out into, so there's that piece. Then there's also the exam school piece, which was decided in courts and there were a group of parents, well-funded parents, who actually didn't, weren't for the exam schools And then there was another group of people that said, look, why are we just discussing about the exam schools? We should be talking about all 125 schools. And then there's issues of whether or not the police should be in the schools. Um, I think the report that I read yet today in the Boston Globe said eight handguns have been found in the schools. Now, when I say found, I worked, I'm, I'm an educator, I'm a teacher so i literally have worked in schools where there's metal detectors at the door and everybody goes through them everybody this is high school middle school and everybody goes through it in the morning they get their backpack searched and everything but and so there's that issue politicians they'll talk to you they listen to you but they want your vote and make no make make no mistake about it there are roles of voters that you can look up listings of voters that you can look up that says if you're registered to vote so you may be complaining to your city councilor or your state rep district city councilor, at large city council state rep and they look up and you're not a registered voter be like yeah okay and as nice as they are to you as much as they listen to you it comes down to whether or not you can support them with your vote you can support them with your uh, campaign support, meaning going out there and get signatures for them going out there. and there are currently uh, people getting signatures for all those other positions that I listed earlier in the show, Governor, lieutenant governor, auditor, treasurer, Secretary of State, Secretary of the Commonwealth, which is Secretary of State. Um, so attorney general. So these people are going to be coming around and they will listen to you because they want your votes so registered to vote. These issues, that aren't necessarily able to be voted on like school committee also are influenced by you having a voice and you saying what it is that um, you want in your schools, in your neighborhood, for your children, for your grandchildren, for your community. So show up at the hearings for the superintendent. There are hearings right now, excuse me, deciding on who the superintendent is going to be, school, superintendent of schools, Boston Public Schools is going to be and you can that's open to the public and is free. There are meetings now that are deciding whether how the elected versus uh, appointed because there's a home rule petition that was submitted by city Councilor uh, uh, Ricardo Arroyo and also city uh, at at large uh, Ricardo Arroyo is a district city councilor, and um, Julia Mejia is an at-large counselor. They filed a home rule petition favoring elected versus appointed. So that's happening. And again, we run down to the last few minutes in the show. So here's some advice that has nothing to do with the voting and everything to do with your life and how at the end of life. If you've been around and you're still alive, thank you. Um, I think we have one more show before Mother's Day. But if not, then happy Mother's Day on May 8th. But... Here's some information for those of you that may not have your affairs in order. Make sure all your bank accounts have direct beneficiaries. The beneficiary needs only to go to the bank with your death certificate and an ID of their own. So many people are dying, and dying before their time, and they're not ready. And you leave this whole mess to whoever is behind, left behind, your family members. And weddings and funerals is when it gets real funky so a tod is a transfer on death deed if you own a home completing this document and filling it out with with your county saves your heirs thousands this document allows you to transfer ownership of your home to your designee all they need to do is take their id and your death certificate to the county building and the deed is signed over doing this will avoid the home having to go through probate which takes a year living will Allow one to put in writing exactly what you want done in the event you cannot speak for yourself when it comes to healthcare decisions. Durable power of attorney. Allows one to designate a person to make legal decisions if one is no longer competent to do so. Power of attorney for healthcare. This document allows one to designate someone to make healthcare decisions for for a person. Last will and testament. Designates to whom personal belongings will go to. Funeral planning declaration allows one to say exactly one's wishes as far as disposition of the body, the services, and then the above, if the above documents are done, you can avoid probate. If all the above is not done, you have to open an estate account at the bank. All money that doesn't have direct beneficiaries goes into that account, and you have to have an attorney open the estate account. The attorney also has to publicize your passing in the newspaper, or post publication at the county courthouse to allow anyone to make a claim on your property. Make a list of all your bank accounts and account numbers, all investment institutions with account numbers, list of credit cards, utility accounts, and make sure everybody knows it. Take care of yourself and each other. Love you.
0: The preceding commentary does not reflect the views of the staff and management of WBCA or the Boston Neighborhood
1: Network. If you would like to express another opinion, you can address your comments to the Boston
0: Neighborhood Network at 3025 Washington Street, Boston, Mass., 02119, attention LP 102.9FM.
1: If you would like to arrange a time for your own commentary, call WBCA at 617-708-3241 or email us at radio at bnntv.org.